the College Planning Edge. Multiply your odds of getting into your dream college and get your hands on thousands of dollars of fat, juicy scholarships. Brought to you by Lockwood College Prep, helping college-bound families get the edge in college admissions, financial aid, scholarships, and test prep. Well, hello there. My name is Andy Lockwood, and you are on our webinar, How to Get In and Qualify for Tremendous College Tuition Discounts in Today's Turbulent Times. Thanks for joining us, and it's nice to see you. Uh, Pearl, my wife and partner, is behind the scenes in the chat, just making sure that everyone can see and hear. So if you would be so kind uh, as to let us know um, your name and where you are from, and that'll imply that, that you can hear and see the presentation, that would be peachy. Just because, you know, I do talk to myself a lot, but I don't want to really do that for the next hour. And, uh, and then find out after the fact that nobody could get the information that I promised. So we're going to be touching on a lot of stuff tonight um, in relatively fast, fast and furious and non-politically correct fashion. So let me just see who's coming on here. We have a lot of people registered. Uh, let's see. Nima. Daniela, Mary Ann, uh, Kelly from Chicagoland, Maria, our client from Long Island, good. All right, Joyce, Fort Washington, Allen, California, Mary Ann from the Poconos, Jennifer, Spurge in Atlanta. All right, good. You are far flung. Uh, got a Shamanad family, a Shami Mommy. That's a high school local to us here on Long Island's uh, probably the number one um, parochial high school in uh, in Long Island. And um, I'm actually going to be alluding to um, that. That's uh, an experience that one of our clients had at that school uh, a little bit later, coincidentally. So, um, all right, good. So, so I'm assuming you can see in here. Okay. Uh, just before I get into my slides here, um, like I said, I'm, I'm going to be, moving relatively fast and trying to cram a lot of information in. So my goal is to, to make the information as helpful as possible, but I, I can't, you know, it's going to be incomplete because I can't possibly dump out everything I've learned in 20 plus years uh, into the next hour. And you're going to have some questions. That's perfectly fine. Just pop those into the chat and Pearl will manage those. And then when I get done with the uh, the slides, then I'll be able to take a break and answer everyone's questions. Um, there is nothing to buy at all on this on this presentation. I know it's going to be disappointing to, to many of you, um, but, but um, if you are interested in talking to us uh, about our services, I will explain how to do that only after I'm done with all the uh, the content that I that I put together. Because there's a lot to talk about. You know, this it seems like every year. Um, every year there's two things that happen. One is that I hear from parents and some kids, wow, uh, it seems like it's harder than ever to get into college. This year was exceptionally hard. It's never been this hard before in our, uh, ever. And um, that may be true, actually. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's not necessarily as true as you might think. I'll, I'll discuss some of those statistics and theories uh, in, a, in a few minutes. Um, and then I also have a lot of conversations about you know, paying for college and negotiating um, how financial aid works, how scholarships work and all that. So 
Um, so that's something I'm going to make sure we cover too. I'm going to start off talking a little bit about financial aid, uh, about admissions and then financial aid, and then back to some tips about the essays and some fun stuff like chat GPT and, and other hot topics. But if you have questions, lob them in. Uh, the best questions, by the way, are going to be ones that are not ultra specific to your situation because we did have 252 or something people register for, for this presentation. And usually, you know, 60% or 70% will actually view it live or, or on replay. So um, if you have a, a special, really specific question, that's probably not going to be good for the rest of the group. So just keep that in mind when you ask uh, when when you ask questions. But I am happy to stay on um, as long as we can um, to to make sure that you that you get answers to the questions that you came here for. Okay, all right. So, and I guess the other thing to, to say is, um, you know, you, you're going to hear stuff out of my mouth that uh, may be offensive. Uh, it'll definitely be contradictory to what you may have heard from your guidance counselor, whether you're at a private school or a public high school, uh, from friends, from family. And I'm not here to try to convince you that, that they're wrong and I'm right, but I am going to share my specific experiences and my clients' experiences. And then it's gonna be up to you to, to decide whether it's right or, or not for you. And just understand that even though it may seem controversial, um, I'm not trying to, uh, I don't know, get higher ratings on Fox or, or something, something like that. I'm just trying to tell you um, my experiences the way I have them and, um, and, and in a straightforward and candid way. All right. All right. So let me get into my screen here. Screen sharing. And then just let me know that you can see this. Just type in, in chat. The word yes, just to make sure. Of course, I can't see the chat, so Pearl, let me know if people are able to see my screen. Was that a yes? Okay, Pearl, uncharacteristically quiet. Okay, so here we go. We're gonna talk about how to multiply odds of admissions into your dream school, how to obtain tuition discounts of more than 54.5%, even if you think you can't qualify for anything. And um, specifically, we'll cover some new updated informations, uh, admissions information. I'll talk a, a little bit, but, but cover a lot of ground about the financial aid rules, changes, some college essay tips, because just to date stamp this presentation, uh, I'm recording this on May 4th. Advice about how to deal with whether to submit your scores or not. Uh, something like 80% of colleges are test optional. What does that really mean? And what does that mean for you specifically? If you, you're in the right place, if you are, uh, if you have a, uh, someone who's graduating, a rising senior, which means class of 2024, or someone younger, a uh, 10th grader or a 9th grader, or, or maybe even earlier. If you feel like you're not necessarily getting the guidance or personal advice you'd hope that you would get from your guidance counselor, and that, again, could be a public or private school, uh, you're stressed out or anxious and or anxious about whether your kiddo can even get in to a decent college and you're nauseated by what they're asking you to pay for tuition. 
All right, so I saw a lot of familiar faces in the chat, but there's a lot of new folks, and some of you might be wondering, hopefully just the new people, might be wondering uh, who the H am I and why should you care what I have to say? So uh, Pearl and I have been in, you know, featured over the years frequently on local and national and sometimes international news. I was even briefly in that Netflix Operation Varsity Blues um, documentary, by the way, as an expert, not as a suspect, just for the record. And um, Pearl and I were recently on the um, front page story of, of Newsday, and a golf buddy of mine said, wow, Pearl looks great, and you look like her accountant. Very nice of him. Uh, I've written a few books on the college process, various aspects of it. Uh, we get, and more importantly, you know, not, uh, beyond all the braggy stuff, is uh, we do a really good job for our clients. We get great reviews. We have clients from all walks of life applying to all sorts of schools, not just Ivy League schools, but also regular colleges. Sometimes they even recommend that kids take a gap year. You know, they don't, even though I'm a college advisor, all I care about is what's in the best interests of our clients. And um, really what we're all about is helping kids launch themselves to be successful for life after college. So all sorts of uh, business owners and athletes and um, races, creeds, shapes, and sizes. Uh, we have high school principals and teachers and doctors and lawyers and um, contractors and, you know, you name it. It's re really uh, everything you could possibly imagine in terms of professions that um, our families hail from. And I've gotten, you know, super, um, I guess, uh, testimonial reviews over, over the years. Uh, this is one of my favorite ones. Scott said, I was so disarming and nonchalant about his, uh, Andy so disarming and nonchalant about his capabilities. He was wondering if it was a scam, but his uh, son ended up getting a uh, huge financial aid package. And uh, Scott was pleased when he got five times the amount, he got more than five times the amount of his investment with me. He said that's the best money he ever spent. Um, Dr. O'Hara, who's now superintendent in, in another district, said, I know a lot of college planners who promise results but don't deliver. In your case, I got real results. That was pretty cool. So just to be uh, very brief here, in case you're wondering, you know, how I got into this field, I get that question a lot. So I, I, I thought I would do one slide on it. I love talking about myself, but not really. Um, I, I attended Wesleyan University because, which is at the time, the fourth most expensive college in the country. And the logical sound reason for that was because I like the basketball coach. He said, you know, look, I get five guys a year. If you want to be one of them, you can come. And I said, okay. And that's how I chose college. Irony of ironies. Uh, my dad said, you know, when he was doing all the loan paperwork and I was doing loan paperwork, we very uh, rarely talked about finances. Um, and he said, look, don't worry about it. Just go to the best college you can. It's all, it's all going to work out. Well, how did it work out? Not so great. I had uh, more than six figures in uh, uh, I, hundred thousand, more than $100,000 in loans, all sorts of credit issues and mortgage denials. And, you know, um, it, it wasn't easy. And now we have uh, four of our own kids. And I knew there had to be a better way as we embarked on this career more than 20 years ago. And we want our kids and our clients' kids and you to not have to suffer anywhere near 
what I went through. And for the most part, that's that's the case. But sometimes, our, you know, we, we see people who make um, what I would call similar bad choices no matter what. And that is certainly their prerogative. But I always, you know, try to help people avoid the type of pain and suffering that I went through. You can you can fast forward through all that junk. And tonight we're going to talk about a, a lot about how to uh, avoid taking on huge amounts of debt or overpaying for college or not getting a college return on investment. So here's the lay of the land in terms of college applications and acceptances. Volume is way up since the pandemic started. It's, it's more than 20% up in terms of total applications going in and acceptance rates uh, have plummeted. It's looking like so far this year, they are down again. You can see some of these numbers from elite schools and, um, you know, good competitive schools. They're, it, it, it's super hard if you look at the numbers. And it's so hard that there's this phenomenon of the uh, the rejection party that the New York Times reported on recently with a sheet cake or walls proudly displaying rejection letters. It's such a common thing that kids are now sort of commiserating by bragging about their letters and whoever has the most rejection letters wins, you know, like a gift certificate or something. Pretty funny yet not funny. But if you look um, behind the stats, I just want to uh, do a little bit of peeling back the curtain here. One of the reasons that applications are, are so high, uh, so, so numerous is because of the common application, you know, with one click of a button, um, you can submit to multiple colleges and more and more schools are accepting the common application in order to you know get more applicants these test optional policies that has been a, a really really big driver of applications and those um they've been around for a really long time i think um i think it was uh, maybe bowden college in 1970 was i believe the first college to go test optional but once uh, the, the pandemic hit us and there were you know a lot of fears about being in a closed room and taking tests and uh, our, you know kids experiencing driving for an hour or two to a test center only to find out then that it was closed that's when uh, a ton of schools embraced the the policy of not requiring your SAT or your ACT but that resulted in a ton of applications but also a ton of applications from people who are unqualified. So I always say this, there's a difference between applying and being accepted test optional. Anyone can apply test optional. Does That doesn't mean that you should, and I'm gonna give some tips on that. Frankly, at most competitive schools, like the ones I listed and all the other ones you can probably think of, most affluent students or, or middle upper middle class, most of them submit their scores or they, they want to submit their scores. And, and most of the ones who get in are the ones who submitted their scores. Colleges are a little murky about the, that statistic, but that seems to be the case. Um, you should understand that there's a lot more than just grades and scores that go into the admissions decision. So there's approximately 25 factors. And if you take away one of the most important in terms of academic factors, the three most important are your GPA, your rigor, meaning how many AP or, or IB classes for the most part, and your test scores. If you take away one of those three items, those other two and the other 20 odd factors become more important. 
So they better be very strong if you have hopes of getting into a college um, without submitting your scores. All right, let's talk about your guidance counselors. And again, public and private schools. They don't understand all the factors that admissions officers consider, especially including the non-politically correct ones. Or if they understand them, they probably feel like they can't talk about them because of um, pressure. But I think they don't understand for the most part. Getting is largely about how you market yourself. It's not a meritocracy. Just because you deserve to get in doesn't mean that you will get in. Your academic record might prove that you have the ability to succeed academically at a, per, at a certain college, but that doesn't mean that you'll get in. So two totally separate considerations, being able to succeed and getting in, different things. Most guidance counselors are completely clueless about financial aid and merit aid, but it's not their fault. Um, for the most part, guidance counselors are the one of the least entrepreneurial types of professionals you'll ever come in contact with. Maybe people who work at the DMV are, are above, <laughs> I'm sorry, are above them, but to understand how to market yourself, you need to, you need to think entrepreneurially. And I'll, I'll give you some examples of how to do that as, as well as some bad examples of actual comments from guidance counselors that my clients received over the years. They're not trained in, in finance it's a, uh, or financial aid. And they're outnumbered by students. The ratio on, I'm sorry, the average ratio of, of student to counselor nationally is 400 to one. I think it's actually more than 400 to one. You know, as long as I'm criticizing guidance counselors, uh, most of them were not high achieving kids themselves. And therefore, that's the lens that they see their current students through, even if those kids are not the same type of kid. So they can't relate. For the most part, they can't relate. And I know, I know I'm being critical here, and I, um, I also recognize that there are exceptions. But um, I'm going to um, – look, I wouldn't have a college advisory business if everyone was getting what they thought they were supposed to get from their guidance counselors, whether private school or public school, right? So I have a skewed version um, of, of how uh, people's expectations from guidance counselors are, are, is met. But I can also tell you personally, and, and Pearl would attest to this also, um, out of our four kids, our, our fourth is our last final child is now headed to college next year. She's in 12th grade. Um, we've had the same guidance counselor for all four of our kids, and we absolutely love her, and um, which is terrific. But I don't necessarily rely on her for, for a lot of the stuff that we're, you know, we're talking about tonight, clearly. So most of them were not high achieving um, in, in general, and and that's why they are guidance counselors. And I don't, and I don't mean that to sound um, snobby, but that's just factual. So here is a comment that a client of mine got. Um, they just told me about this three days ago. She, I was encouraging her to, uh, for her senior year to sign up for a couple extra AP classes to show that she challenged herself because some of the schools that she was applying to um, are going to be f uh, filled with competitor applicants who have done exactly that. So her guidance counselor was talking her out of taking AP psych because he said it's not good for a business major. It's not going to help you if you're going to be applying to college as a business major. So she said, and, and the mom and I were on Zoom uh, three days ago, and they said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, you know, no offense, but that's really bad advice because number one, 
in order for you to feel comfortable about be- your chances of being able to get in, you need to take more APs, period. And number two, um, how stupid is that comment, right? If you're going to go into business, don't you think it could be potentially helpful to understand how people make decisions like whether to hire you or not or whether to, whether to buy something or not? Or if you're negotiating a, a deal with someone, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't help be helpful to understand how he or she is thinking, right? So that was bad advice. Um, famously, Michelle Obama was told you're not Princeton material by her guidance counselor. And she certainly turned out to be that. And I think Harvard Law material. Um, another type of quote I've heard a lot, talking people out of applying to a certain college. Well, we haven't had anyone from this high school get into that college for years, so don't bother applying. Um, I've heard this comment a few times. This uh, SUNY is the uh, state university in New York. There's different campuses. So the, the equivalent comments are probably said you know, by guidance counselors in other parts of the country. Well, what's, what's wrong with just going to a state school? There's, you know, they're good enough for my kids. And uh, look, the, I, I think most of these bits of advice may sound wrong, and I believe they're basically well-intentioned. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with state universities. You know, out of our four kids, two of our four have attended in-state uh, universities, and I think they're great. But it's not, the, it's not the advice you should be giving super high-achieving kids who are gunning for something more competitive. Don't submit a resume. That's showing off. You might you might make the you might <laughs> you might um, make the admissions officer feel bad because they may not have had all of the experiences and accolades that you have won. Don't do that. Yeah. So I, I think that's a little projection there. I think the guidance counselor was actually just um, kind of comparing herself to my client. That was really bad advice. Um, another advice about taking extra APs: don't do that. It's just going to be too stressful. Well, um, it is stressful, right? And the thing is, is that if you're trying to get into, let's say, an Ivy League school and you're competing with kids who have taken 12 to 15 AP classes and are valedictorians and salutatorians um, and some of them don't don't get in, uh, if you don't try to do the same type of thing, you're playing with one hand behind your back. Uh, you know, you're, you're not going to win that fight. So... On the other hand, um, if you're going to be, you know, skipping lunch and getting three hours of sleep and having a, a breakdown, you know, as a human being, I would say, you know, you need to really think about that decision to take that extra AP class or IB class. But if a, if a child tells me this is my goal, I will say, okay, let's help you achieve that goal. This is what it takes to give yourself the best shot to optimize your ability to get in. And then it's up to them and the family to, to make that choice. I would never say don't take the extra AP or, or you should take the extra AP no matter what. Um, here's one of the worst things I think is that most guidance counselors don't have the quote unquote big college meeting until 11th grade. But the thing about applying to college is what you're doing is summing up your entire body of work from 9th and 10th and 11th grade and, and what's on tap for 12th grade. So if you don't have that meeting until 50% of your college body of work, your, your pre-college body of work is put to bed, then it's a problem. And if that's the time you find out all the stuff you should have done earlier, you know, again, that's, that's like fighting with one hand tied behind your back as well. And again, just so people don't take this the wrong way, even I know some of you will, I really don't think all guidance counselors are terrible. I do recognize I'm in a bizarro, weird parallel universe with our business um, you know, catering to people who feel like they're being shortchanged or want more help 
than they're getting even from private schools, which cost the equivalent of college tuition. We have probably 40% of our, of our college advisory clients come, come from schools like that. And um, they just want more than, than what they're being given. But these are all actual examples. I didn't, I didn't make any of these up. All right, let's talk about the inconvenient truth about who gets a little help getting in. Um, you should know, and this is, again, stuff that you probably will never hear from your guidance counselor uh, or anyone else, is that at most colleges, anywhere from 50 to 67% of slots are allocated for special types of um, what they call tags or selects or, or categories. And um, uh, by the way, so, so just, if you just join us, if you have questions, lob them into to the chat there. Pearl is behind the scenes. Are, are, are people asking questions yet? Okay, so she's going to so she's going to be marking them for me as questions. They're going to be um, there's a way to do that in the in the system here. And then I will get to them. But feel free to lob them in. I will uh, I will answer the questions as much as I can once we wrap up with the slides here. So what are those special categories, those selects or tags? Recruited athletes get a little boost in terms of getting in, and they get spots allocated to them before non-tagged or non-selects. So recruited athletes at most colleges get help. Underrepresented minorities get help. And that means a couple of things. It means... Um, uh, sometimes it means underrepresented minorities, which could be black or Latino or Native American who are under-resourced. So the theory is, which I, which I subscribe to personally, not that that matters. The theory is that um, they don't have the same resources to hire, you know, fancy schmancy college advisors or tutors or whatever. So, um, but they still have, a, you know, plenty of um, ability and, and upside and potential. But there's also help for people who may not be under-resourced, but they are visually diverse currently. that's the, Those are two categories of underrepresented minorities. Um, legacy used to be more important. It still is at some schools like Notre Dame and, uh, and Harvard, but a lot of IVs have announced that they are no longer, um, I don't know if I believe it or not, but they're, they're no longer considering whether you had a family member attend uh, international students are highly desired and they get special treatment. People apply early decision, get some somewhat of uh, special treatment. And, uh, you know, I, I imagine most of you, but not all of you understand the differences between how you apply to college. So er early decision is the quote unquote binding one. But I'm just going to say this briefly. Nothing's binding. No one can force you to go to, to a college, but that gives you the biggest um, benefit or thumb on the scale or I guess it's point your finger on the scale in this photo uh, for um, um, for your ability to, to get in. Um, although it really hasn't seen, seemed like that in the last couple of years. In early action, there's really no help. The whole thing about early action is um, it was it's a way for um, kids supposedly, allegedly, to get all their applications in and then find out earlier if they got in or not. But what happened in the last couple of years is people apply to early decision and early action. They rush in their applications um, in November. And with the idea they would hear in December, what they heard in December was that they were deferred. So they ended up not get, you know, get, um, getting their stress over with until April, uh, even May. Um, children professors get special consideration. So um, we just, you know, it's funny, funny story, which I'll, I'll tell briefly. Um, so 
um, our, our last daughter, Sammy, was admitted to uh, to Cornell, and um, we've and we emerged to prove it. And um, she met one of her friends, you know, who uh, from, who they met online, um, and we went up there on admitted students day, and uh, he was going to walk home to his uh, sorry to his grandfather's home, who happened to live in Ithaca also. So uh, so Pearl was like, no, we'll drive you home. So we drove them home. He comes out. Grandpa comes out to say thanks. We're chit-chatting. And it turns out that he has been a professor there since 1968. <laughs> so so <coughs> then, then we started thinking to ourselves, oh, maybe that's why the grandson didn't uh, mention that his dad was a professor there because we think we assume that's how he got in. Um, well, look, it's, it's true. Professors um, and some staff, their, their kids have a slightly easier time of getting in. And there are special slots reserved for children of professors. That's kind of um, part of the bargain. When you go to teach at a college, you may not make a gazillion dollars. And you may feel like you're underpaid for teaching two classes a semester. Um, but one of the perks is that your kids can go there for free or for a steep discount. And it'll be slightly easier for them to get it. Okay. Here's the politically incorrect truth about these selects. They tend to have lower academic credentials. And this is not me trying to be a firebrand or uh, get under your skin. It's just factual. Is this good or bad? That's up to you to decide. I, you know, who cares? Who cares what I think? It doesn't really matter what you think either. That's just the way it is. But there is a Supreme Court case pending. Should come out this June that will, it looks like it's going to um, strike down some of this practice of using are heavily relying on race as one of the factors for college admissions. Now we'll, we'll see what else, um, what, what colleges do in reaction to that. A lot of people think they'll be doing a lot more test optional admits, um, but test optional. Yeah. Here's a, one of the original protests that, that um, I think went on before the actual case was, was filed by, uh, Asian Americans. A lot of them come from from economically disadvantaged backgrounds, but they kick butt on the SAT and the ACT. So it's it's a little odd, you know, for for colleges to say that they're helping economically disadvantaged kids, when some races tend to do better than others. So I'm not getting into that. I'm just kind of giving the lay of the land here. So let's talk a little bit more about test optional because it's kind of a um, kind of a curious thing. I think a lot of colleges are still sending out mixed signals about it. Certainly guidance counselors um, seem not to understand it the way, at least the way that I do. So if you are a DEI applicant, meaning a diversity, equity, and inclusion applicant, you probably don't have to submit your SAT or your ACT. That is, if it's below the range of what, what the school publishes, because schools use test optional policies to put their thumbs on the scale to help these favored nation, you know, these desired tags or selects, particularly the diverse kids. And that also could mean visually diverse, just to remind you, not just economically. If you're not a DEI applicant, you, you probably do need to submit your SAT or your ACT in order to get in. Probably. These are, these are tendencies that I've observed now over two and a half years of, of these policies being um, pretty widespread. In general, if you're going to submit your your SAT or ACT, you should only do so um, if you're in the range and if 
you're looking at a published range, which colleges still do, and you're looking at, okay, I'm right in the middle. I, I probably have a, a decent shot of getting in based on my GPA and my scores. Bear in mind that you, you, you should be above the middle to, to really feel comfortable, above the median to really feel comfortable because those published rates include the athletes, the international students, et cetera, who tend to bring down those averages. So if you're not one of these, you know, um, special categories, then you really need to be superior to the median. Um, here's a fun fact, kind of an, to, to me, kind of an ironic fact. Um, since these test optional policies have been um, implemented, it's only resulted in so far in <clears throat> an increase of about 1% of minority enrollment. It really hasn't moved the needle at all. Although that's all you hear about, right? So, um, so what does that mean? It, it either means that most of the kids who get admitted are submitting their scores at most colleges, which um, I think is, is mostly true. You know, so, some schools, it's like 70, 80% of kids submitted their scores. Others, it's like 50% or 60%. Um, it could also mean that colleges are using test optional scores to attract uh, affluent non-DEI kids who just couldn't get in otherwise. And that seems to happen too. But again, a little murky. Those, those stats aren't fully disclosed. So we're all sort of feeling our way here. Um, my feeling is, just, just what I've laid out in this slide, uh, depending on what category of applicant you are and where you fall on the, you know, in the median, in, in the range, um, I would let that influence largely the, uh, the decision of whether or not to submit on a school-by-school -school basis. Your scores may be great at some colleges and below the range for others. It's a game-day decision. I, I have these conversations constantly with my clients about whether to submit or not at, at each particular school. And sometimes those are in direct contravention of guidance counselor um, advice. All right, let's talk a little bit about financial aid. Are you guys finding this helpful so far before before I get into this tip? Because I'm going to go into the money stuff and then go back to a little admissions and then uh, we'll wrap up. If you find this helpful, just let Pearl know in chat and she'll say something nice to me, hopefully. What, Pearl? All right. Thanks, Dan, Sergio, Courtney, etc. Appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> okay. Here's what's happening with financial aid in a nutshell. And uh, this is just a, a headline um, a couple months ago from the, the good folks at Lehigh University. They're announcing only a slight increase. It's wafer thin. Undergraduate tuition for the upcoming year is going to be up 3.75% higher than last year at a mere $61,180. That's tuition. Total cost of attendance is $78,650. doesn't matter that we're in a recession or headed for one or uh, there's layoffs announced virtually every day. Colleges all raise tuition every year, no matter what's going on. Why is that? What are they spending their money on? Well, some obvious stuff, you know, you walk around any school on a tour, you're going to see the physical plant, the construction, 
the buildings, the dorms, but you'll, they're also going to show you their amenities, right? The lazy rivers, the rock climbing walls, steam rooms, uh, and, you know, every type of eating and dining option, gourmet food known under the sun. Uh, High Point University, which is the king of all this stuff, they have a steakhouse on campus. And then there's salaries. You know, it costs a lot to run a university. It's like a small city. You've got professors, you've got security personnel, and you've got college presidents. <clears throat> the president of Penn makes $3 million, uh, $3,164,829 a year as a salary. But guess who makes more? Pearl Naiman College, where someone gets paid, the president would get paid more than Penn, putting him on the spot. She said Syracuse, not a bad, not a bad Miami. guess. I don't know. Miami, not a bad guess. I don't know the answer. SCAD, $5 million. 30, $5 million. SCAD is the um, Savannah College of Art and Design, which is notorious for loading kids up with huge amounts of student loans. And then they're lucky to get an $18 an hour graphic design job. So it's not just the elite schools where presidents are raking it in. And then you've got all the admin. You've got, you know, there's, there's been, that's really the story of the, the rise in college spending besides all the physical plan stuff. It's the personnel to run these places, not professors. It's not spent on teaching. It's spent on secretaries and chief marketing officers who make, uh, I think, roughly $400,000 and their staff. And then in the last few years, there's been an uptick in hiring people under the DEI um, uh, category. So on average, schools have 45 diversity, equity, and inclusion officers, which is um, a lot more than the number of the typical number that of, of history professors at a given school. The range of DEI officers nationally is between 71 and 163. And the salaries that they make, anywhere from $329,000 to $430,000. And the, I'm talking about the big public universities. That's how much you make as a DEI officer if you're at the top of the heap. Nice work if you can get it, right? Um, and look, I, I'm not bashing the whole movement to increase diversity and inclusiveness and all that. But honestly, do you really need... 45 or I think uh, Michigan or our other daughter goes has 97 DEI officers. I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, maybe I'm just too small minded. You know, we run a small business where we keep things very lean here, but that, that seems excessive to me, but maybe they're all doing important work. They're doing God's work. I don't know. Uh, however, it's not all terrible. You know, colleges um, are uh, every year, they, they increase the amount of discounting that they offer. So they're, right, they're raising their rates, but they're also increasing their discounts. Currently, according to the National Association of Collegiate Business Officers, the average private school tuition discount is 56.2% off, and that's need-based and merit aid. It's mostly merit aid. Um, at any given college, roughly only 25 to 30% pay full price. The other, you know, 70%, 75% are getting a discount. And there are strategies to improve your eligibility, legal ones even. I'm going to cover the legal ones today just in case anyone's wearing a wire. <laughs> so here's the, uh, my, uh, I show this slide literally every presentation. And then on that presentation, I'll say I show this slide on every presentation. 
So it's it's art imitating life. <laughs> it's I'm going meta on you. Um, but this is the current simplified version of the financial aid delivery system subject to change. I'm going to go through financial aid in five minutes. I'm going to do my best to keep this short and give you the minimum uh, allowable allowance that you need to know. So um, the most important factor in determining whether you're eligible or not is your income. They will take up to 40, they mean the fin financial aid formulas will penalize you or assess you on 47% of all of your income. And I'll talk about the changes later. And if you have questions on this, lob them in. Uh, we, we can go through them. Money in your kids' names is bad. I'm talking about trust, uh, like UTMA or UGMA types of accounts or joint accounts held with, with your kids. Those penalize you at roughly 25% um, of whatever amount you have saved for your kids. Whereas assets or savings in your own name penalize you at far less, only 5% and change. But those are the big three, income, child savings, and parent savings. Those are three of the biggest out of, out of 76 or 77 factors that are weighted by financial aid, the financial aid formulas. We get questions a lot about the 529, whether it's good or bad, friend or foe. The 529 is, it, it can be good or bad depending on the other stuff in this, on this slide. If your income, 47% of your income is gonna already knock you out of the box for whether you'll receive aid or not, then the 529 is great. However, a lot of people who have 529s, they're not as widespread as uh, you might think. I think 19% of families have 529s, only 19. But um, if your income is in the right place, then the 529 is bad. Now, before you ask questions about, well, how, you know, uh, how, how high is too high for income, there isn't a magic number because of all these other 77 factors besides income that go into it um, currently. So currently, if you have a $200,000 income, let's say, and one child in college, you're not going to qualify. But if you have two children in college, currently you could qualify for need-based aid because your income gets split among your children. Again, that's currently. So the 529 would be good for someone who only had one child at that income level, but bad if you had two children at the same income level. So what I'm talking about is this calculation is called the expected family contribution, which is a, a misnomer. Um, it's, it's how much the formulas or the government expects you to be able to pay, but you almost always pay more, unless you're talking about the most elite schools, the Ivies and another uh, maybe 20 or so colleges who, who meet 100% of your financial need. The rest will, will charge you or ask you to pay more than your expected family contribution, which might be why they're changing the term, which I'll get into. Just understand, this, this is the important thing here on this slide. College generosity is extremely different across the board. Two people can look exactly the same on paper, income, savings, you name it. One family can get financial aid offers from 12 different colleges, and the other family can go over 12 because of how they chose their colleges. They chose either schools that are generally not at all generous or not generous to their child. They don't necessarily want that particular child because of, you know, whatever, grades, scores, you name it. So how do you get your hands on this money? 
<clears throat> first, some of this is going to be nuts and bolts stuff, but it's all important. Others is going to be more high-level strategic stuff. Uh, first, you need to figure out which applications are required by each school, right? So every college in the country takes the FAFSA, which is the free application for federal student aid. And about 400 colleges require an additional form called the CSS profile. A lot of colleges have other financial aid applications. Some of the IVs have their own forms, which drives Pearl nuts. She does about 300 families worth of financial aid applications every year. And uh, it's a lot harder to do the customized ones. But you need to check and see which, which applications are actually required, first of all, because a lot of people miss that. Then you've got to look at the deadlines to file. Those, are, those will vary from school to school. There isn't one universal deadline to file. A lot of people um, don't even think about applying for financial aid until after they are done with their admissions applications. And that is potentially a big problem because you might miss a priority deadline if you do that. So there's two sets of deadlines. Look at them all ahead of time, like way ahead of time, like this summer would, would be ideal. And then map out a plan so that you don't miss any of these deadlines. What Pearl does for our clients is she finds out the earliest deadline and then she does all the applications so that no one ever misses uh, any, any deadlines and they don't miss out on any money. And then there's strategies to increase your eligibility for aid, which I'm going to share with you. Those include sheltering assets or sheltering income, particularly for self-employed people. Uh, again, these are all legal and ethical, in case you're wearing a wire, ha ha ha, same joke twice, okay. Wow, this guy's good. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, Identa, what? What, Pearl? Yeah, the uh, peanut gallery is calling me subtle. No one really ever calls me subtle. Um, identifying colleges that will be generous to your child. I'm harping on that for a reason. Avoiding colleges that will not be generous to your child. All right, <clears throat> before I get into the strategies, let's talk about some of these changes. So this year coming up, meaning the FAFSA for, is it 25, 26, bro? All right, for kids graduating 24 for that academic year, 24-25, and going forward, there are new changes that have been pending for two years. And we still haven't seen all of them. We've seen a draft of the new FAFSA, but that's still just a draft. So one of the big changes from the FAFSA Simplification Act, which was um, passed in 2021, is to streamline the FAFSA from 108 questions, I think, to 40. Um, I think it's 46 basic questions, but then there's a lot of sort of sub-questions after that. So I'm not sure exactly how streamlined it'll be, but streamlined somewhat. Okay, here's one of the bad changes. <clears throat> I, I mentioned this before. Um, two families can have the exact same financial numbers, but one family could have three kids in college, like we will next year, and the other family could have one kid in college. And the way it works for kids with multiple school uh, kids in college up until this coming year, 24-25, was that um, if you had two kids in college, then you, your eligibility doubled. And if you had three kids in college, you had a 66% improvement. Now, under the new laws, the new regulations, I should say, proposed regulations, we're all treated the same. If you have two kids in college, you're treated the same as if uh, you had one kid in college or, or three kids in college, the same as one kid in college. That was a big change, had something to do with something that 
uh, Senator Grassley wanted for a really long time, and now he's retiring. And I don't really know why he wanted that, but he, I guess he didn't want to penalize people who had kids spread out more. I don't really understand how this is uh, pro-family at all, um, but that is one of the bigger rule changes. I mentioned this in passing. The expected family contribution is now, uh, going forward, going to be called the student aid index. It's going to be calculated a little bit differently, but but um, it's rebranded as the student aid index. Uh, the only reasons I've read are really stupid, so I'm not going to waste your time on those. All right, this is a big one. If, if you're divorced or pending divorce, you know, separated, it used to be a lot easier to say that the low-income parent it was the custodial parent and therefore the one that should fill out the financial aid applications. Now it's going to be a lot harder because the parent that supports the child more, meaning the parent that typically the parent that takes the child as a, as a deduction and declares him or her a dependent on the tax return, that is now the custodial parent. <coughs> the, the tax returns are now going to be aligned with the, with the FAFSA. So the implications there are, you know, if you are in one of these situations where you alternate with your ex-spouse um, who declares the child, you know, on a year-by-year -year basis, when you're applying for financial aid, it's going to be in your best interest to be that parent who declares the child as a dependent on the tax returns. So this is probably going to mess up and, and take away a lot of money from most of the time single moms who who have the kids live with them. That used, that's the current standard. Um, and that's going to be replaced by the IRS um, custodial parent. So uh, not a fan of this change at all. Um, here's one that's, that's potentially good. Um, it used to be that if grandma or grandpa sent money to pay for college, then that would affect the child's eligibility the next year by reducing it in, in an amount that was 50% of that amount that grandma and grandpa paid. Um, that is going away. There's no longer any penalty for grandparents helping out. So that's a good one. Um, another good one is some income that used to be penalized as part of the financial aid formulas, including workers' compensation. Uh, that is no longer going to penalize you for financial aid purposes. Um, another re related one here is that um, uh, child support that is not taxed, that was considered for financial aid purposes to be the same as any other income, as earned income. So penalized up to 47%. Now it's going to be penalized at around 5%. Um, well, Pearl saying as an asset, I, I understand that's what they say. I think it's just confusing. I mean, it just happens to be the same percentage as an asset, right? But it's, it's, um, um, instead of being penalized at 47%, it's only going to be penalized at 5%. So in other words, if you got, you know, $50,000 of child support, um, then before you'd be, you'd your eligibility would be reduced by like, you know, $23,000 and change. Now it's going to be reduced by 2,500 bucks. So that's, that's pretty good. All right. Here's some predictions. Um, Pearl's actually wearing the turban and, uh, she has her crystal ball ready. <clears throat> you never know when a prediction is going to break out, so she's always ready. Um, I think that um, because of the shortened FAFSA and the um, therefore the lack of information that colleges previously used, 
more colleges are going to switch to the CSS profile, which is much more um, involved. It could be two to 300 questions. Um, or potentially there's going to be a, a lighter version of that produced, supposedly. Those are rumors, some of the exciting rumors in our fast-paced college advisory business and industry. <laughs> um, so, so either way, I think that the streamlined FAFSA is not going to give enough information and colleges are going to ask for more. I think it's going to be a real cluster, you know what, for colleges to implement these changes because they have to update all their software, this and that. Um, it's, it's a hassle. And I think that just based on any technological changes that the Department of Education has made over the years, uh, this past year, the, cha the changes weren't that big, but the, but the FAFSA website just totally sucked. It was always down uh, multiple times a day. And that doesn't make things easier for, you know, again, someone like Pearl who files 300 families worth of financial aid applications every year. Um, it's, it's like funny with two hands tied behind your back. It's like, you know, it's like typing with your toes or something. And uh, it's, it's going to be hard and there's going to be, there's going to be problems. I, I promise you that that's my big, big prediction. I'm not really going out on a limb that way. And that's going to cause a lot of stress. It's also going to delay things, right? So um, if the, 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 the new deadline for this year's FAFSA is going to be, um, is it December 23rd? It's something it's like right before Christmas or something like that. Or maybe it's right after Christmas. I can't remember. Um, do you know what the deadline is? Is it after Christmas? All right. There, there's, it was slated for basically doing all the stuff over Christmas. Um, maybe it'll be January, right? But um, the, the issue is, like, currently, if you're applying for a decision and you um, your deadline for your financial aid application is November 1st, and your um, financial aid application deadline currently, before these changes, is, like, November 15th, you would find out whether you're admitted December 1st and then shortly thereafter, maybe two weeks later, you find out whether you um, got enough money to be able to say yes to the school to let you in. Well, that, you know, what's going to happen this year, right? If you um, apply early for, for an early decision, but your financial aid applications don't even go in till January, if that's the deadline, and you don't find out for another, you know, who knows, three weeks, um, that's going to delay a lot of these early decision decisions. So I don't know how, what, what colleges are planning to do about that. I know they've been discussing it. Uh, I really, I'm, I'm trying to decide whether this is my own bias because uh, of my own situation or, um, <laughs> or I don't have my, uh, my self-interest only in mind here, but uh, I, I think there's going to be not just a controversy, but a lot of pressure to repeal the rule about not giving parents, quote unquote, credit for having more than one child in school at the same time, in college at the same time, once parents actually understand that they're being shafted this way, because no one, no one understands this stuff. Like you guys are in rarefied air. Congratulations for, for showing up for this webinar, by the way, because now you know a lot more than probably 99% of your peers. But I think once people figure this out, they're going to be like, wait a minute, this is awful. So um, I don't ever, you know, encourage anything like this. But if you think this is unfair, you should definitely alert your your local congressman, unless that congressman is George Santos, which is ours. Um, that that may not go anywhere. <laughs> but so not only am I in a sleazy profession, 
because uh, of Rick Singer and Felicity Huffman and all those guys. But Santos is my is my congressperson. So um, other than that, you should believe everything that I say because you know it's I'm on I'm on the internet. Why would you know what could go wrong? <clears throat> all right, let's talk, let's talk about some loopholes, legal ones, and by that I mean exempt assets. So. Um, these are things that don't penalize you. So, so they could be loopholes and they're also potential mistakes. I'll explain that. So there's four retirement accounts, meaning 401ks and IRAs and that type of thing. Um, your primary residence that does not count against you on the financial, uh, on the FAFSA, uh, life insurance with cash value and annuities. So, um, this is a little inartfully written here, but funds deposit into these assets, these classes of assets or these these assets in general are sheltered from the financial aid formulas. So you can use these potentially some of these such as um, retirement accounts, life insurance and annuities to, to, to hide legally your money. Cause if you have, let's say a hundred thousand dollars in your child's name, you will lose $25,000 worth of aid. That's how the formulas work. That same $100,000 in a life insurance policy with cash, a cash value, like a whole life policy or something like that, that penalizes you bupkis, zero, nada, zilch. So it's it's not where, I'm sorry, it's not how much money you have saved, it's where you have it saved. It's not how much, but where. That can work. Now, because uh, I practiced law for five years and I'm still in remission, I have to say, this doesn't work for everyone. Um, You've got to do your due diligence to understand how these products work, how these scenarios might work. Um, I am not a licensed financial advisor, so I'm really talking out of turn here. I I used to be in-house counsel to a publicly traded brokerage, so I do understand these products and how people rip off widows and orphans and all that. (laughs) But um, I'm not just talking about George Santos. I'm talking about, you know, other people, but, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't, um, I'm not up on all the nuances of how all these things work, but really what you want to be concerned with is a, will this even work for you at all? Um, because there are people who there are who call themselves college consultants who also have licenses to sell these types of investments and they go around telling people, Hey, you should buy an annuity. That doesn't always work. So a will work and B you need to understand how that new uh, instrument or new investment that you're putting money in, how that works, meaning the fees, how you can access your money or not access your money. Um, and then C, you've got to look at uh, what are the tax ramifications of, you know, let's say you have a 529 and you sell it early and you're paying a penalty on those earnings. There's a 10% penalty on the 529 earnings. Um, I was talking to a client last week and she had something like $50,000 in her 529. And I said, okay, well, that's going to penalize you. Um, do you know what your cost basis was? Can you look at your statement to figure out how much you invested? And she said, oh, yeah, it was $51,000 because the stock market has really not been great for her. And she also had not had that 529 for a super long period of time. I think she may have, may have had it for four or five years. So I said, okay, well, in that case, there won't be any penalty because you don't have any earnings. So you should look at terminating your 529, but that doesn't work for everyone. All right, so do you understand this? These are the loopholes. These are the legal loopholes. Um, the ret- retirement accounts, primary residence, life insurance, and annuities. 
So if you have any questions on, on this stuff, lob them in here. I'm going to proceed as if you understand everything, but I will pause for questions. Pearl, you're still getting questions? She's like rearranging her whole office right now. I'm not sure what she's doing. All right. Let's talk about some dangers, financially landmines. Um, these are mistakes that people make all the time. So number one is not understanding what I just told you and mistakenly disclosing your retirement accounts on your FAFSA or your primary residence on your FAFSA. Those are exempt and they should never be disclosed. If you disclose them by accident, you'll be penalized on them unfairly. You are stealing from yourself, almost literally. Um, blowing deadlines, people do that all the time. Don't do that. Um, once I get to nine here, take a screenshot of this, please. So, so you, uh, you don't, um, you remember this stuff. Uh, mixing up student and parent stuff. So $100,000 in a parent's name penalizes only about 5,600 bucks max, but in a child's name, it penalizes you $25,000. It is so easy to do that on the, on the FAFSA. They, it's when, because they, they bop around from parent stuff to student stuff, back to parent stuff when you're filling it up. Um, just data entry stuff, very common for dates of birth to be wrong, for social security numbers to be wrong. Pearl picks that stuff up a lot. It's not just an admin thing because if you know the right numbers and you put them down in your financial aid application, then you try to submit it with your IRS data from your tax returns. And those are wrong because your accountant has been using wrong information for 16, 17 years it's gonna get kicked back and the delays may cause you to lose out on eight before you discover it. Um, a lot of times people think they filed, but they didn't actually pull the trigger because there's a sort of a complicated um, signature system and verifications and two-step verifications and uh, <laughs> FSA IDs and all this junk that um, the, the Department of Ed is doing because of all the hacking that, that goes on so you know, for more security, but you know, by the time that you actually are ready to file, you might think that you have, and then you haven't. We see this all the time. Uh, this is a big one. After you file, be prepared for a small tsunami of follow-up requests for more information and other communications. And sometimes they don't go to you. Sometimes they go to your kid. And I'm sure your kids are great with email. Um, mine are sometimes pretty good but it varies. So just in the off chance that your children have an inbox of 20,000 emails that they've never opened and colleges, uh, college financial aid offices are going to add to those never to be open emails, you might want to come up with a different system such as creating a new e email uh, for just for the college process or letting your kid give you access to their email for this purpose. Whatever it is, you need to um, you need to monitor communications. Pearl always tells our clients to set up one day a week, maybe it's Sunday night, where you spend a half hour to 45 minutes or so just going through all this stuff, making sure that nothing is slipping through the cracks. <clears throat> and number seven is not taking advantage of legal ways to shelter, which I just highlighted for you, the last slide. Number eight, it's not applying at all because you think you won't qualify. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. And here's the, here's the biggest landmine, panicking, and then the ensuing paralysis from, uh, so don't do that. Everything's gonna work out, not just with, with the money, but also um, with admissions. It may not work out exactly as, as how you planned it was gonna work out, but it's gonna work out one way or another. All right, so 
Take a screenshot here. I'm going to take a sip of water. All right, moving on. All right, some stuff for self-employed people or business owners. Um, it used to be, you know, under, under the current rules, not for the upcoming 24-25 rules, that businesses, most businesses were ex- exempt. They had a zero value. Now, to be fair, most people filling out ta- uh, the FAFSA, including accountants, don't understand that. But so I don't know how big a change this is really going to be for the for the normies, you know, for the lay people. Um, but for us, it's a big deal because we always try to um, show the least amount of assets possible in a legal way. So now um, the rules are very specific about you've got to come up with a value for your business. And if your business owns real estate or other hard assets, that's really what this rule is getting at because uh, a lot of people would try to say that the real estate that they own in an LLC uh, has fewer than 100 employees and therefore it's worth nothing. I guess enough people would, would say something like that. We would try to get away with that also. And the financial office would say, well, wait a minute, that uh, LLC, that that real estate does have some value. You can't say the business is worth nothing. So there's like a, a give and take there. Um, there are other strategies to reduce your uh, value. First of all, um, you know, if you had, if you own real estate in an LLC and you have to sell it in 30 days in a fire sale, yeah, your value is probably going to be less. The fair market value is probably going to be lower than if you took your time to market the property, right? There's also what um, my accountant, who refers to himself as Rick the Legend, um, I call him the Ancient Legend. Uh, he, he coined the term tax scholarship, which refers to a bunch of different techniques to decrease the value of the asset or lower your personal income if you're self-employed, which can benefit you not only for financial aid, but also for tax uh, IRS purposes. And some of these, and again, I'm not, not only am I a recovering attorney, I'm also an amateur accountant. I'm not, I'm not an accountant at all. So disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Um, these works, these, these uh, types of techniques work for some of our clients and actually um, us, some of these work for us personally, but they're not going right, to be right for everyone, of course. So um, you can run any, any of this stuff by your accountant if you want. Uh, they chances are they'll be like, "Huh?" Or "Yeah, I've heard of that, but I don't know if that really makes sense." You know, it, it can make sense if you if you document everything and it's legit. So there's something called a Section 127 plan, which allows you to pay for employees' college tuition. Um, you you could c- you could consider electing C corp status instead of what you probably have if you have an LLC or an S corp. Uh, where the income just flows through to your bottom line after expenses, whereas a C corp it gets stored at the corporate level and does not affect your bottom line. Again, there's other features and attributes involved there. Um, if you put your kids on payroll, you're going to be paying them at a lower marginal rate and shifting income to them, and possibly deducting the um, those expenses from the business side. Um, you know, we have doctors and, and other professionals who have a lot of equipment that uh, is pretty expensive and they get it off there. They give it away as a gift and then they um, lease it and deduct the lease payments and lower their business income that way. So there's a few techniques that, um, uh, you know, may, may not be what most accountants give. Uh, or suggest because frankly most of them are just like scorekeepers or they're you just dump everything on them and they're like okay here's how much you owe right they don't they don't plan they're not proactive 
Um, so if that's the case with you, if you have one of those types of accountants, maybe it's time to look for someone who's a little bit more proactive who can help you um, at the very least save money on taxes and possibly help you qualify for more aid. Or at least if you're not going to qualify for aid, free up the cash from these tax scholarships, from these deductions that are buried in your business. All right, let's talk about merit aid. What happens if you can't qualify for need-based aid? Well, that's okay, because there's actually more merit aid than need-based, and merit is just a term that is also, like value, very subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder. So if you're looking for merit aid, your best bet is probably going to be private colleges, because they have the most money to give, where your child is in the top 20% relative to his or her competitor applicants in terms of GPA and test scores. Yes, test scores. This is one area where SATs and ACTs still seem to matter at most colleges. All right, some essay writing tips. I told you I was going to be moving quickly here. Um, you have to understand when you're writing an essay, what is the purpose of the personal statement? It's not to write an A paper for your English class. It is to explain why you are interesting or different, why they should take note of you compared to the other, you know, 50,000, 80,000, 100,000, 120,000 applicants. I think Northeastern got 120,000 applications this year. 120,000 applicants who look basically the same as you on paper. This is a marketing exercise. It's, it's not necessarily to come up with a Pulitzer Prize winner. All right, what about the supplemental essays? Different purpose. Mostly the supplemental essays, if your college offered, uh, asked for them, are designed to help you uh, explain to that college or prove to that college that you've done some thinking about why it is a good fit for you. So you have to be very specific about what that college has to offer. You want to plumb the website and the course selection and the professors and all that and match that up to stuff about you that you may or may not, what well, you may have done or you may be looking for um, uh, more of on a going forward basis when you get to college. So two different purposes. And just some brief comments about ChatGPT. Um, people are using it. I don't have a problem with it personally. Not that that matters. Who cares? But um, people are using it. And some admissions officers are ringing the alarm. Um, I was, uh, I talked to them a couple times a year. And I was talking to a colleague of mine who was on the admissions committee of Princeton University for 30 years, and he's seen it all. He was also one of the guys behind the college board. Um, I think his daughter is a, a, an executive with the college board, too. And I showed him one of the essays that appeared in a New York Times article or a Wall Street Journal article, and he read it. He's like, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, the thing about ChatGPT is it can be very helpful to get you to get a draft going, but it's garbage in, garbage out, right? So the quality of what it produces depends on what you ask it to produce, what, how you prompt it. So if you just say, write me an essay about overcoming an obstacle, uh, college essay about overcoming an obstacle, you're not going to get anything that's helpful. What you need to do is to give a lot of detail and specific, you know, specific detail about um, not only what the obstacle was, but your feelings, uh, your thoughts, um, dialogue, inner thoughts, you know, you name it. So currently, that's not something that artificial intelligence can, can do, as far as I know. I mean, maybe by the time this webinar ends, it, it will, be, <laughs> will be possible. But um, uh, I think that whatever you do, whether you write an essay from scratch or you use a tool 
like Bard or ChatGPT or whatever, um, you're going to have to do some heavy editing and most importantly, thinking, right? You're still going to have to think. It's like a calculator, right? You, you, calculator doesn't help you solve a math problem if you don't know how to use it. So don't be afraid of ChatGPT. Don't think it's good or bad. That's my that's my message right now. Um, and it's possible that admissions officers will change some of the admissions process. I don't know. I don't have any inside information. I'm just speculating. But perhaps they'll require more personal interviews now. Um, so they can really get to know kids beyond what, what they put together on an application. Or perhaps they will, more colleges will ask for high school papers that were submitted and graded and commented on by English teachers. Um, maybe they'll bring back the writing section that was abandoned by the SAT, which kind of seems unlikely given all the test optional um, schools. But who knows? You know, this, we're, we're all sort of feeling our way uh, around with this stuff. Some tips for rising seniors. And if you have a rising senior, by the way, and you're looking for help, um, I will um, talk a little bit about our boot camp. But if you have younger kids, uh, this is just something to put in the back burner. Um, start this right when school ends. Start thinking about the essay sooner rather than later. Get organized. This is not just about writing. It's about time management. You have to understand that you're going to go through several drafts of your essay. It could be three. It could be ten. It could be more. Sometimes the final version looks nothing like the initial version. You've got to, therefore, allow space in between or time in between these drafts for them to breathe, for, you know, for, for your subconscious to, uh, to do some of this editing you know, while you're sleeping or while you're taking a shower or walking the dog or, you know, whatever, you, or, you know, gardening. I don't know if anyone gardens. But um, that's, that's when you might get some breakthroughs after weeks of pondering the essay on and off. And understand that this is a marketing exercise. It's about saying, this is why I'm different. This is why you should choose me compared to 50,000 other kids who look the same, same grades, same scores, same sea of sameness. And don't worry about coming up with something original. I get this question a lot. You know, I have this idea, but it's not original. I'm like, nothing's original. Like guidance, uh, uh, sorry, admissions officers will read a thousand applications a year. And if you're an admissions officer, for five years or six years, you've probably seen every essay topic you're ever going to see, right? I mean, how many experiences can kids, high school kids have had in their 17 years? So forget original, but remember to make it interesting. Remember that um, it, it'll be boring if you don't give any detail. It'll be interesting if you give a lot of detail and tell a story and describe your thoughts, your emotions, your anxieties, you name it. All right. <clears throat> I had this conversation a couple of days ago also with the client I mentioned earlier. Um, she talked to her guidance counselor and they were talking about what's a good or a bad topic for their essay. And he said, don't write about death. That's going to depress your admissions officer. And the reason they brought it up is the mom told me that her daughter had been to something like five, they'd experienced a ton of loss. They've been to five funerals in 18 months or something. A lot of aunts and uncles and grandparents uh, passed away. She so said, do you think that's a bad topic? And I was like, well, it could be if you're, you're going to write a cliche essay about, you know, I miss my special time with grandpa when he used to whittle away at a stick. And he told me, you know, always count your last nickel. Uh, every little bit matters. Let me tell you how I bargain with guys at the flea market. You're going to learn how to drive a good bargain, buddy. 
uh, that was an actual draft from a client years ago. I was like, yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about chiseling a small business owner. Um, <laughs> but I said, look, um, what if you look at these um, funerals and these eulogies as a lens that helps you reflect as you, as you sit there and listen to these eulogies to reflect on what you'd want your own eulogy to be about, which is not necessarily morbid. You're looking at a funeral as a lens to really talk about what a well-lived life means to you. And if that's the bulk of the essay, that's not about death. That's just using those, um, um, those, those funerals as, as, a, as, a, as a setting to, you know, to stage this type of discussion. Two totally different things. Do you guys see how that's different? Because I'm not sure I, I said that the most articulate in the most articulate manner, but um, it just happened like literally two or three days ago with with one of my clients. So I, I thought I would uh, include that breaking news. Okay. All right. So you got a couple options here in terms of next steps. Um, Number one, and Pearl, can you post the offer? For, uh, all right, so if you want to talk to us, Pearl's going to give you a link to schedule a college strategy session, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, so look, it's harder than ever to get into college and hard enough to pay for it. It's more expensive than ever. So you have two choices. You can figure all this stuff out on your own. You know, maybe I gave you a little bit of a leg up. Uh, if I, I hope I did. I mean, I hope I delivered. I think I covered literally everything I promised in my emails. Um, or... If you want some help, you can take advantage of a tested and proven system, which which we have. And um, I mentioned Shamanad before, right? So this is a um, a uh, from last year, uh, a, a great great comment I got from a um, one of the parents there. Only only kid accepted so far, and thirty six applied early action. Lots of our friends from all over were deferred, and quite a few were denied. It's the magical Lockwood touch. LOL. Uh, <laughs> debatable, but I appreciate that. What's that? No, no, not that one. <laughs> All right, Pearl's posting, I believe, the right one. Um, you know, uh, Cornell said we had exceptional applications and we should be particularly proud. Guess I made all this possible. So much of the application is based on your sound advice. Uh, this, this one was funny, um, but awesome. You know, the, uh, uh, admissions counselors said, admissions officer told my guidance counselor that my application was the best one that she read. You, you know, you don't, we don't always get comments like that, that, and in, independent comments from admissions officers. That's, that's, that's why those are pretty cool. So, um, if you are a 2024 or younger family, if you're interested in chatting about exploring, whether it be a good fit. Instead of paying our, my usual uh, outrageous $1,200 hourly consulting fee, you can talk to me for free if you book using the button that Pearl just posted there um, and if you're one of the first 12 people. If the button doesn't work for some reason, you can go to our website, lockwoodcollegeprep.com slash book hyphen Lockwood and fill out a quick application and then schedule something and then we'll review it. And, and confirm the uh, um, the meeting. So lockwoodcollegeprep.com slash book hyphen Lockwood. 
I'll give that in a second. Here's the details on our uh, on our college advisory program. We call it P4 because it covers four different aspects, which refer to uh, I refer to as shorthand for plan, path, position, produce. Plan means backward planning, figuring out majors and careers. Path means building a strategic and balanced college list. Position means how do you separate yourself from 50,000 other applicants who look the same as you on paper and produce means how to get money, whether it's merit aid, you know, not all of our clients don't qualify for need-based aid, but where is the money? Is it merit aid? Is it outside, um, uh, outside organizations? You name it. So uh, the program includes helping you launch for success post-college, choosing a major that leads to a satisfying and lucrative career instead of three shifts a week, making unpronounceable coffee drinks, cracking myself up. How to choose colleges strategically, not rear window sticker college only. Uh, how to qualify for five-figure merit scholarships, even if you didn't crush the SAT or cure an epidemic. Loopholes and landmines on the financial aid applications that can save you thousands. How to visit colleges, uh, places they'll never show you. How to ace the college interview. How to write an essay so gripping that admissions officers will practically crawl naked over broken glass to admit your students. Activity sheets and resumes that shine, they don't bore. Overlook gem colleges, how to negotiate with college. Oh, coaching and accountability. That's a big part of what we do. So you don't have to scream and threaten your child. Uh, we also help negotiate. Um, here's one of my older examples back from uh, 2012. We were able to help Rick get an extra $30,000 because we played USC's offer off against GW and Syracuse. That's one way to negotiate um, when you have offers from competitor colleges. So he went, he got a $30,022 increase. Yeah, here's a client uh, also from a few years ago who got an extra $13,000, which he felt was well worth the investment with your company, which I uh, appreciate. Just imagine how great it would feel if he finally had the clarity and confidence that you were on the right path finding the money you need to afford your children's dream college tuition instead of letting her down. And if you knew that you had an expert who has mentored hundreds of families with college bound teens in your corner with no agenda other than what's best for your family and how to feel if you were free from all the uncertainty and doubt and stress that you're looking at the wrong colleges or committing other deadly mistakes, like writing crappy essays that won't help writing about the wrong things. So many areas you can go wrong uh, in this process and we're here to help you avoid those. What would it mean if you could save thousands or tens of thousands of dollars off tuition if you had no stress about which colleges to apply to, which to go early decision to, what to file, when to file, what essays to write, when they're due, et cetera. What if you were the one, how great would it be if you were the one who's not stuck screaming at or threatening your son or daughter? You left that up to us. How much time, money, and stress could you save with a solid plan? But um, this offer is not for everyone. I'm only looking to speak to and, and work with low maintenance families who are not, who understand that this is not about being cheap on their way to success, who value specialized, strategic expert help to optimize their children's applications and qualify for substantial tuition discounts and can handle, not only do you want, but they can handle objective, non-sugar-coated advice that's in your best interest, even if it's not what you want to hear 
That's not going to stop me. I'm just warning you. Um, of course, we require significant investment, but you can see the results that other people have gotten from the program. So serious inquiries only. Please. Uh, Nicole, Dream College, Presidential Scholarship. Thank you for all your help. Thank God it's over. Uh, from the moment I walked, this is from maybe my favorite uh, quote ever. From the moment I walked into your office, I felt an enormous weight lifted off my shoulders. Thank you for all of you done for my precious girls. So the college strategy session is yours for the taking. Um, limited to 12 people, though. And if you click on the button or you can't do that, you can go to LockwoodCollegePrep.com slash book hyphen Lockwood. And now I'm going back. Back on screen. Back to the big time. All right, Pearl, you have um, you've marked all the questions for me? Okay. All right, guys. I see a lot of nice comments here. All right, cool. Um, all right, let me get into these questions. Going from bottom to top. Uh, what if the child is not exact about her goal? She has an idea, not an exact major. Um, you got a problem. You got a big, no, I'm kidding. Um, that's normal. And that is actually, um, I didn't emphasize this at all, but that's probably the most important and coolest thing I think that we help kids with is getting to know themselves objectively, how they are wired and what that could translate into in terms of places in the world where they could um, make a living and love what they do so work doesn't feel like work and, and they can you know get off the mom and dad full ride scholarship. So that's hardly what everyone ever comes to us for, but uh, we, we that, that's another reason why we're different because I look at this process as, you know, college is great, but it's only four years, and this is much more about the 40-plus years of helping kids launch themselves to be successful in that time period. So um, we have a career counselor. She's been with us, I think, about eight years now. She's worked with easily 400-plus of our, of our clients, and that's the first thing we do is to focus on that and then whittle that down to maybe three or four careers and majors that lead to those careers and then start building a college list around those a cluster you know not not just one thing but but a cluster of three or four majors um that's even if you don't think you have that that issue if you're a parent you have that issue so that, that's very important um eliza can you talk about institutional priorities trumping can you use that word um academic achievements in the selection and merit process well um they do uh but but academic achievement is is viewed you know differently because some people have more resources for these achievements than others and admissions officers acknowledge that some people have disadvantages so frequently that's how it plays out they, they will supersede or trump the, um, the people with higher credentials, but they might come from more privileged backgrounds. That's probably the best way. Uh, and to what degree are institutional priorities more important? Um, sports, legacy, race, class, first, general. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they all tend to be more important than if you don't have those. I, I, th I think it's uh, um, hard to hard, hard just do more than what I did uh, in the presentation. Um, Joyce, for recruited athletes, also lower divisions. Yeah, D2, D3, D3 particularly. They get a lot of help. Um, Kevin Newman, are college courses accounting given the same consideration as AP courses? No, usually not. Um, which doesn't make sense to me because, you know, 
if you're taking a college course that demonstrates the, and you get a good grade that demonstrates you, you can do well in uh, college courses. Right. But um, uh, not always, I would say. Karen Stern, how accurate is the uh, net price calculator? Can I depend on the results to determine how much I'm going to pay? So every college has a, what they call a net price calculator on its website. They are largely, but not completely accurate. So you need to, and they're garbage in, garbage out, and they're not all identical to each other. They ask for different um, data. So they're a good place to start, but um, if you make a mistake or the calculator makes a mistake, the calculator can make a mistake by not asking you about all the data that, that uh, goes into a financial aid award. A financial aid award. So um, I would use them, but don't overly rely on them. <clears throat> Nancy, do you still recommend taking the SAT if your kid is doing the first two years at a local community college, will be getting an associate's degree and is in the honor society. Yeah, I would just in case one of the schools that they, they want to finish up at requires the SAT. I would definitely do it. Um, Judy, what's the average amount that is okay for a child to have in savings before it hurts them? Well, it's, it's pretty formulaic, right? So if you have a couple thousand bucks, that's not a big deal. But but whatever um, you have is 25% is, uh, is the penalty. Um, Michelle, can you send a transcript of the talk? Uh, I don't think we're doing a transcript, but we hopefully recorded this. And if that happened, then we'll send that out. Uh, Aaron, is the amount of possible financially less or more or new impact for certain majors and particular for impacted majors of separate colleges like engineering? Um, it's hard to make a broad sweeping statement about that. But um, uh, there are there, there's a practice called preferential packaging that has nothing to do with the financial aid formulas, and the kids that they want more tend to receive more money. So that that could um, make the, the answer to your question yes. Um, Daniela, what about fifty fifty? I don't know what that the means. Oh. Okay, meaning for for the in the divorce situation, well, that's that's going away. It's a the, that that is no longer relevant. The new the new rules is that whichever parent declares a child on the tax return that can only be one child, uh, one one parent, then that's the custodial that's the custodial parent for financial aid purposes. Um, Amy, so will these changes come into play for applying for aid this fall? Yes. Will grandparent contributions still be included in CSS? I'm, I'm sure it will, but we haven't seen that yet. I, you know, we haven't really heard about um, any CSS profile changes. Pearl, I got this. You said you wanted to be behind the scenes. She's echoing me and talking over me at the same time. She never does this when, uh, when we're not doing webinars. Um, <laughs> giggling now. Rip me a new one later. All right, uh, Eliza. Um, with these loophole accounts, the CSS still asks for details about them, but you're saying the colleges don't take them into account. Um, what I'm saying is um, most colleges don't take the CSS profile, so those colleges will not take into account anything other than what you put on the FAFSA. And for the CSS profile, um, it does ask about a primary residence, and that is a financial aid factor. That is an asset for financial aid. They do ask about retirement accounts. Supposedly those are not a factor, and um, retirement annuities are exempt on the CSS profile and 
life insurance with cash value is also exempt on the CS's profile. Um, Jaina, do they have any technology to identify when AI is being used? Yes, um, they do. I don't know if it's going to be deployed successfully. So out of my comfort zone on that stuff. Um, Lisa, does the P4 include help with filing of the FAFSA and the CS's profile? Yeah, that's the fourth P. That's Produce and Pearl. So it's, it's really the fourth and fifth P. She does all that stuff. Um, and it's really about strategies to get more money, which a lot of that has to do with with college selection. I mean, that, that's really just as impactful as the, the actual completion of the forms. Lorraine, hi. Hi. Um, how... <laughs> How how important? Hi, Pearl. How important is it for a school? Lorraine seems friendly, right? I shouldn't make fun of her. Oh, we know her. Oh, we know her. Okay. Hey. <laughs> um, oh, from Cap. Oh, from the theater. All right, that Lorraine. How important is it for a school to have a bet certification for a computer science major? I don't think it's that important. I think you got to. Um, you got to go to the career centers and see where the kids get internships and jobs and all that type of stuff. I don't think it's that important. Um, <clears throat> Sergio, in your opinion, would a minority student with a 4.01 GPA and nearly perfect SAT ACT scores have a higher chance to get into an Ivy League school if they went to an elite private high school in New York City or an elite public high school in Long Island? Um, you know, some of the uh, the private schools have these, you know, these feeder programs, not programs, these feeder relationships with Ivy League schools. Um, and there is a, um, the counterbalance to that is that there is a perception that there's sort of a quota in terms of how many kids they can send to a particular Ivy League school, which is actually false. Um I think it's going to be fairly equal, um, given the stats that you're that you are um, uh, that, that you're mentioning here. Uh, but what's going to come down to is differentiating yourself, not just from the other peers at that high school, but from everyone else who's applying. So, arguably, the private school in New York City might have um, a slightly more rigorous curriculum. And you get credit for that, but you'll probably have other opportunities extracurricularly, potentially at the public school in Long Island. So um, I don't know if I need more information. I, I think it's you probably have a pretty good shot either way, but there's trade-offs, and it really depends on you know what else your son or your daughter is is bringing to the to the table. Um, but you're you're you know you're going to be in good shape either way. Uh, Eliza, back to CSS profiles with loophole account details. Does exempt mean you don't have to fill it out or that they discount it? Um, well, exempt should mean that you should not disclose it. And that's the case for life insurance with cash value and retirement annuities. Those should not be included anywhere on the CSS profile. But retirement accounts, allegedly, um, I, I believe this, I, know, I always sound naive when I hear myself saying this, but retirement accounts... Um, are exempt and they are disclosed on the CSS profile. And uh, I, I don't think it's, it's any other way, but um, 
um, for, but for the most part, other than retirement accounts, exemptions should not be disclosed. People confuse that all the time. Alrighty, I think that was the last. Uh, that was the last question. Uh, last call. I see a lot of people saying thank you, uh, Jana. You're welcome. Um, a lot of questions about the book link, Pearl. Uh, here's a question from Kristen McClung. Is there any way to get a copy of a CSS profile application before actually getting online? Uh, yeah, you can actually look up last year's CSS profile too. Um, Eliza, you are welcome. All right, we're gonna uh, we're gonna wrap. That was a little bit longer, a little bit longer than the hour and a half that I was trying to do. But you guys had some great questions, so that's cool. I'm happy to uh, happy to be here. I hope you got some value out of this, and we'll you know we're gonna be coming on the air with uh, a few more of these related topics over the next few weeks and a couple of months. And um, and if you have any questions about anything we have to offer. Just shoot us an email. Pearl, can you can you pop in the um, the, the, the VIP email? Yeah. You can just shoot an email that goes to our assistant Christine, which is VIP at LockwoodCollegePrep.com. And um, happy to chat about anything you want in terms of our programs, the boot camp, um, which is our eighth annual boot camp, and our other one-on-one college advisory programs. Have a great night. Thanks for watching, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the College Planning Edge podcast. For more information about our Inner Circle Group Coaching Membership, which is a great way to dip your toes in the water of the whole college planning morass, um, and get access to our double-secret software, College Guru software, that helps you create a strategic list of colleges and identify fat, juicy, merit aid, and need-based aid opportunities, as well as some other benefits, check out the Lockwood Inner Circle at lockwoodinnercircle.com and use the coupon code PODCAST for 50% off the first month's membership. Thanks for listening.